0: Welcome back to the Remember Who Made Them podcast. I'm Venetia LaManna, one of the co-founders of this campaign. If you're new here, I encourage you to listen to our previous five episodes, and if you like what you hear, please do share the episode on your social media. It really helps us get the fair fashion message out there. This is the final episode, so we thought we would share what we have learned from this campaign with you and how we're going to be taking our learnings forward. Solidarity is an ever-evolving process. It's not something we complete in a day, but rather something that we dedicate our lives to in whatever way we can. Let us start as we always do. I'd love to hear what everyone is wearing today and I'm delighted to have Swati, Davy, and Ruby on the call with me. So Swati, hey and let's hear what you're wearing today.
1: Hey you guys, I am wearing a beautiful um, indigo blue and white embroidered sarong um, skirt from Myanmar that a friend gave me, which is beautiful and uber comfortable and then as it's still secondhand September I am wearing a old uh, scarf of my grandfather's that got moth holes in it and um, I gave it to a tailor in India who made it into a poncho Um, and so yeah it just really reminds me of my grandfather Um, it's almost like he's wrapping his arms around me right now
0: that is so so beautiful thank you Swati. Ruby what are you wearing today and hello
2: Hi. Hi, everyone. So I am actually also wearing a poncho. So my poncho is actually a a really beautiful mustard kind of earthy colour. And it's made from, I think, a wool from Oaxaca. And it's made, yeah, it's made by a guy called Daniel from, And he has a a label called pigmento and they use all natural dyes and and pigments and yeah like local fibers and working with local artisans there and make them all there in oaxaca i'm missing oaxaca a little bit so that's why i put it on um and it's actually not mine it's my partner steve's and i often steal it from him because it's a beautiful poncho yeah and i'm also wearing some secondhand clothes i bought um a pair of jeans on the weekend at a little vintage market secondhand market um yeah and that's it thanks
0: so, so on brand, and I'm all about stealing clothes from partners. Very, very, double the wear, right? Double the sustainability. Uh, Davy, how are you going to top that? Hi,
3: everyone. Thanks for staying with us. Um, I'm also uh, following secondhand September, and I'm wearing like a secondhand cocktail dress that I found in 2008 at a secondhand market in Uganda, where a lot of secondhand clothes also end up. But it's something I've loved. It's like red, blue, green, floral. And I went down a little rabbit hole this morning to find out more about where it came from. And it's by um, a fashion company that had its heyday in the 80s. Um, Albert Nippon is the founder of Nippon Boutique. And I'm feeling especially proud because I learned that he um, went to prison for tax evasion. We got him. Um, And so... Something about that makes me feel very proud and very on-brand with the Remember Who Made Them campaign um, and all the news that's going on today in uh, global politics. And today I am wearing a
0: corduroy navy shirt, which I thrifted somewhere in South London when I was recording a podcast. can't remember exactly where, but I love it. I actually bought it for my husband and I steal it all of the time and then I am also wearing some vintage denim jeans which I found recently. Now they are Calvin Klein which is not a brand that I love or support but I love these jeans and luckily they're not obviously Calvin Klein so I think I get away with it and then I'm also wearing an old cotton t-shirt. This is actually from a brand called and I'm so sorry about my pronunciation. It's Merz B. It was made in Germany, designed in Berlin, and the textiles are manufactured on original loop wheelers, which I think is really cool. And I think that's it. Yeah, that's my outfit today. Before we dive into our final conversation, we have one more interview for you, and it is with Nazma Actor. She is the founder and executive director of Awaj Foundation. You might have heard her name before, as Aisha Barenblatt, who was our first ever guest on the podcast, mentioned her in episode one. Awaj Foundation is a grassroots labour rights NGO with over 600,000 worker members across Bangladesh. NASMA has been working to improve the rights of women working in the garment sector in Bangladesh for over three decades after beginning to work in garment factories at the age of 11. Here's Davy with the interview.
3: Thank you so much for joining us Nazma, Um, we always start our interviews with our guests to ask them what are they wearing today and this is um, to honor you know the people that make our clothes and to take some time to think about where they come from.
4: Today I'm wearing leggings and uh, it's like a shirt but a little bit longer because we cannot wear very short uh, kind of dress in Bangladesh. Would you want to?
3: If you could. Yeah, of course. <laughs> We'd love to hear more about your experience of how you um, are working in the garment sector.
4: The textile sector is not the happy and happiest for the uh, structure and the workers will be things. But it's very important for female workers because in Bangladesh we don't have a lot of job opportunity in the formal sector. This is the one of the main driving for the women's empowerment, economical empowerment, leadership, the decision making, and society has been changed due to this uh, foreign remittances. Everything. So it's a very important for the our work, uh, women workers has a lot of contribution, changing the uh, society and try to change the life and livelihood some part. In the garment sector in Bangladesh, the most of the European American customer or brand producing goods in our country because of the cheap labour. When you're asking for the cheap labour market and you are not giving the value to human beings, especially women, that means there is slave, there is exploitation. Corporate and capitalism are running the world. The planet is not controlled by the democracy or the real politician or real participation. The planet is running by the business people like Donald Trump in Bangladesh. We are 80% business people are in the parliament. So why will we get the justice? When the labor law is uh, going uh, to amendment, most of the time is going for the company favors, not the workers. So this is the big challenges in COVID-19 we face. Nobody is taking the responsibility. Nobody is taking their duties. Only profit, profit, profit. If the workers are really important, then why their CSR and monitoring team are not here? The supplier, they are not going to the factory. They are staying at home. The CEO of Walmart or H&M, they are at the home. They should come and visit the workers and work with them because this is a very scary virus disease and these workers are not getting any support or anything. Thank you so much for also speaking about
3: how it's such a global system that needs to change. You know, it's because it's a system that's driven by profit, not by the people. Are you mainly trying to make demands to the factory owners or then to the government, and then to the brand. Have you had opportunities to speak directly with them?
4: I'm always talking about uh, with the government, with the supplier, with the brand, but there is not big change because, as I told you, the whole supply chain is not transparent and accountable. So that is why nobody is bothered and care.
3: We've talked about that in a few of the interviews. That you know, they just trying, they're just rushing to the place where they can find the cheapest labor. Can you imagine? A world where it's different. What would you want it to look like?
4: Actually, I wanted to imagine, or I wanted to see in my with eyes, because minimum wages cannot change the workers' life and livelihood. That is why we need to ensure the living wage, freedom of association, collective bargaining. Women should be the leadership position and they should negotiation about the maternity protection, about the harassment, abuse, sexual, all kinds of issues because women has that quality. So we believe the women and trade union can change the things. That is why we need more women in the union movement and leadership position. And factory level and grassroot voice is important and grassroot leadership is important because Global support is important, but the workers problem, workers lose. That is why the working class leadership is very important and trust building between workers and management where they can change the factory environment, the productivity, workers welfare, well-being and respect and dignity from the both sides.
3: You know, what would you ask of the consumers in the Global North? How would be the best way to be in solidarity?
4: The Global North is very important for us, and we need the global solidarity from the consumer, from the civil society, from the trade union, from the other stakeholder, because we made your clothes, We made you happy and nice things. If we make these things and I made your clothes, why my life is not happy? Why I I have mutation? Why I have long working hours? Why I have sexual abuse or harassment? Why I don't organize my union? Why I don't have job protection? That kind of things when you wear the clothes, when you make happy your life and think also my life happy because I made your clothes and I need living ways and freedom of association and trade and rights. So this kind of education and awareness need to be through the consumer and who buy the goods. And also the people who are uh, feminist or activist also campaign on this demand. So these kind of things we need to be matched, and we need support and we need to educate and we need to show the positive things, also the negative things how we can make balance and make better and better, because we are not against the industry, we are not against the multinational, but we are against the system and how they have to ensure our fundamental rights and our benefit and our life is safe and protected. Thank you. And
3: that's like also really motivating, I think, to remember the power that we hold.
0: Thank you, Davy and Nazma, for that really insightful conversation.
1: Now, let's dive in to our chat. I think in this final episode, we did want to touch on what we've really learned all together during the campaign, and we have been just so... Honoured by speaking to so many amazing garment workers, activists, social justice, movement leaders and organisers and we're just so grateful to them for their time and also for so many of our friends who connected us to them, the people who interpreted the interviews and those people that read in English the interviews by people who didn't speak English. We've really been reflecting on what are we actually being asked to do by workers and by movements as a whole how can we be better allies you know we started off the campaign really by thinking about how solidarity wasn't a t-shirt but what does true solidarity what does allyship look like And I think overall, we have learned that we need to consume less. We need to really honor the work, the clothes that we already have. You know, the most sustainable thing that you have is that that's already in your wardrobe. And just make sure that that is honored as as the most important and first step. If you are going to buy, buy better. Try and buy from sustainable brands who value people who make their clothes and are conscious about the impact on the environment. But I think most importantly, if we really want to change um, the future of fashion, we can't just do that through our own personal consumption. We also need to use our voice. And that's what all of the organizers, all of the garment workers were saying. And it might seem trivial, but it really does work. Think about where companies are putting their efforts. They're putting it into marketing into their image, they pay influencers to get you, to get I, to buy from them, to trust their brand. What we've heard from so many organisers is use our voice, email and message brands on social media. Ask them how do they ensure their workers can unionise? Do the workers receive a living wage? Have they paid up since the coronavirus has hit? Have they actually supported lost earnings or relief efforts? What are the ways that they're trying actively to be anti-racist or inclusive, not just um, in their use of black squares or models or influencers, but are black, indigenous, people of color and non-cisgendered people actually in decision making roles? And above all, does this transcend to supporting the vast majority of people who run their entire supply chain, 80% of whom are black and brown women around the world? If you see a brand failing, call them out. Ask them to do better. Are people in their supply chain given voice, value, and power? Do they even talk about the workers that made those clothes? And also, just think beyond fast fashion we might vilify the likes of Primark's and H&M's but luxury brands are not innocent um the know the chain project really shows that actually some of the top brands are often failing in worse ways and we actually dived into this we dove into this in a Rants and Raves podcast a couple of weeks ago I think also just join movements, follow collective calls from actions by workers, add your name to the chorus asking for better, sign petitions, march, create infographics, create memes, create videos and podcasts. Um, The more of us that are standing in solidarity and demanding better, the more likely the brands are going to change. I think it's interesting when you look at all sustainability and ethical indexes that actually... Brands like Nike or Adidas are actually form and sort of the large apparel brands. They're not doing perfectly, but they're doing a lot better than a lot of the other fast fashion brands. And it's because of all the noise that was created around their use of sweatshop workers back in the '90s and the early 2000s, and the collective action and call for better that that made them change. Um, there's still so much work to do, but being in solidarity with Um, movements with garment workers um, and their unions I think is the best way that we all feel um, we can help change the future of fashion Um, and I think through just the words of an amazing garment worker I spoke to for episode three uh, Kosar Ali in Pakistan who said we all just want to be honoured and recognised for our hard work and paid fairly I want everyone to have their rights They stand with me and I stand with them. There are so many actions we need to take and it really comes from systemic failures. And I know girls, we've talked all the way through this campaign just around the systemic failings um, that actually perpetuate so many of the injustices and the problems that we see throughout the fashion industry. Um, And we keep coming back to really how capitalism is the real virus.
0: Let us absolutely dive into capitalism and system change. And this is something that Davey speaks about brilliantly. I
3: love how I've become your like resident rager against the machine. Um, I, yeah, I think the system, it's something, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I think that's how we've all been going through this campaign and really enjoying sharing with others is what we see now and what garment workers have really helped us see. Uh, We listened to Nazma Begum's interview at the start of this, and she even, like, points out that she's not against the industry or the corporations. Maybe I am. Anyway, but she's not, and she said she's against the system. And I think that's really important that she's even lifting that up. Um, And another part, and the way that it's come up when she was explaining it, did you hear when she was talking about how – she was referring to the Rana Plaza disaster, which, um, you know, we all know is when a factory collapsed and killed um, hundreds of workers. She was talking about how factories or companies and brands are see Bangladesh now as a burden. They don't want to invest there or hold factories there because of the poor working conditions. And it's like, OK, that's great that the brands recognize that, but they just pick up and leave. And the countries have to convince those factories, those brands to come back. Um, by you know offering other um, investment packages, other tax benefits, and all of those cost-cutting measures are not benefiting the workers. It's the workers that have to cut their labor in order to convince the factories to come back, and it's just punishing. It's just so punishing, and I it reminds me of. Um, what's also being talked about in different parts of Twitter and Facebook and social media is that we have to remember that it's not just that this is a broken system, it's that it was built this way. It is rigged. It's um, being controlled by a minority of the top 1% wealthiest people, of which you know fashion executives make up a large part of. And the system is there to benefit them. So I think when we see the system um we have to call it out and it's you we need to consistently punch up you know um it's not about always dragging when i think there's also this discussion about you know cancel culture and you know give people a break if they're trying to do their best i think that's still it's still really important to call people out and to be accountable, because if you are a business in the fashion industry, an ethical business, you just every day have to show up to be better because you are part of changing that system. If you're not up to that task and not up for being called out, I'm not sure you're really in it as well. The more that um, fashion brands continue to say that, you know, they're they're not responsible for the workers, they're not their employees, because they, you know, outsource that Risk, they outsource that responsibility to different factory owners. The more they can get away with anything, the more they can get away with the, the poor working conditions, with the cases of sexual harassment happening in their factories, the more they can get away with union busting. It doesn't make any sense. You can't. Say that you're not responsible for these things, but then sell us a brand that's all about happiness or all about self care or about feminism or um, protecting the planet. You don't let them pull that one on you. (laughs) I think it is overwhelming. I know there's been moments where I'm just like, ah, you know, how are we going to change anything? You know, I look to other organizers and to movements, and we asked many of the garment workers, you know, what keeps them strong. And it is, you know, looking to the side and looking at others who are there with you, who are trying to push against the system, not accept it as normal. And we have to more look at normalizing this fight against the system and what other generative systems are out there, what other cultures of um, respect, other cultures of care are out there that we have. We have the answers. It's not hard. It's not unimaginable. It's just, we need to, you know, band together
1: en masse to demand it. Totally. And um, one of the things that I was also just like thinking as you were speaking, Davy, is that we're almost like told, oh, well, people have to suffer because this, you know, capitalism takes time to get to you, to get to those people. Whereas it, I don't know, the thing that really <laughs> just gets me and, and it's actually something that I'm you know i read on a meme but actually really resonates for me is like we think in in the fashion capitalist system that they're like okay but instead of all of our workers actually having a nice safe world where everyone's basic needs are met we live in a bad dangerous world where most people can barely feed themselves but like Two people, probably like Sir Philip Green and someone else, have like 500 yachts. So it's also just the system is flawed. Exactly as you said, Davy. it's intentional. We know that the money exists. You can't have billionaires and you can't have people owning multiple mansions and yachts and private jets and say that the company doesn't have enough money to make sure that people have a living wage and can actually live in dignity throughout their whole supply chain and we need to see we need to see the system for what it is if we're to make the changes and we need to be in closer solidarity with workers um who know that are demanding that you know they can see the difference between the ways that they're living hand to mouth versus how the owners of these companies are um, are living.
2: I would really agree with what you said, Davy. And I, I mean, the pandemic has really exposed just some of the contradictions, I think with the capitalist system and really the idea of focusing on the individual and, and just, I mean, the, everything we've been told, you know, from one day to the next is now really obsolete and things that could not be changed, you know, have literally changed overnight. And I mean, if I can just say some examples around like access to free childcare and like private hospitals being made public. And like, there's so many examples of just how, I guess some of the unraveling of the capitalist system and how I think it's something really exciting that I think people are starting to question a little bit more and kind of, not only look at their own interests as an individual but see how everyone is connected like this experience of going through something you know we're all experiencing it in extremely different ways and you know we all have different privilege that we're navigating through this but there is a connection and a connectivity of how we're seeing the sort of system unravel around us and I think people are sort of at the same time with the parallel of what's happening with you know Black Lives Matters and different movements moments in movements that are taking place as like a kind of a wave of accountability. And you're seeing that roll into sort of how brands and corporations are also being held to account or just, I don't know, people are online more, I think, as well. And I think that kind of visibility is just having an interesting effect of sort of starting to just loosen some of the fabric of what was wound so tightly and seemingly kind of seamless, I guess, in a lot of ways that it's just starting to crumble. And I think that for me is quite an exciting moment. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, it leads us really... Nicely on to talking about individual action versus systemic action, probably my biggest learning from twenty twenty has been focusing less on the impact I have as as an individual and focusing more on making sure I always come back to the systemic change that we're we're talking about. I got to the point last year where I was you know really really restricting myself in a lot of ways because I thought that I couldn't do my bit unless I was doing absolutely everything. That I could as an individual, and I have learned so much about how individual change is totally based on privilege, right, like I am able to go to a zero waste store because I live near one, you know I'm able to shun certain elements of the fashion industry because I'm straight sized because I have money because I have time, all of these things. something that comes up again and again, especially with the kind of in the kind of sustainability space on social media, is individual action. We know that if we see a post about individual change and individual action, it will get a lot of engagement. And we know that brands are using individual action as a way to market us products. Now, I know how important individual change has been for me. Thinking about my own habits when it comes to fashion has led me to thinking about the people making my clothes, which has led me to uncovering more about the systemic change and the oppressive system that fashion was built on, which has been fundamentally important to my understanding of everything. And I'm so grateful for that. But I think we need to strike the right balance. If we're putting too much on individual change we're not actually going to solve the issues. Uh, I recently wrote a post about H&M and about how they're greenwashing and how their conscious collection accounts for something silly like 0.2% of their entire business model. There's an incredible um, conversation with them and various other brands um, that actually Arja Barber, a previous guest of the show, was part of um, with parliament which i will leave in the show notes it's really really worth a watch and kenny ethan jones who is an incredible trans activist wrote underneath like this is such an important post i need to do better when it comes to working with brands and i was like of all people like actually you're the someone who i want to see fronting campaigns and he said i feel like with individual change i'm part of something and I'm doing my bit and I do see it like it's really important it makes us feel like we're involved and we're doing something and and I am hopeful that those individual changes then like it happened with me leads to this understanding of systemic change it's really important as individuals to do our bit for our mental health because I feel like it's really important it really benefits my mental health it gives me purpose Uh, I think it's really important to uh, feel like i'm part of something And, and, and this this movement does feel exciting but i also think we really need to give space and grace for ourselves we can't do everything and that is okay especially in a pandemic right like this is something this was a huge thing for me this year like i can't shun plastic completely because frankly it's not safe right and i think we have to allow ourselves that space and we can't make this a movement that if you can't do everything then you're not welcome we need as many people to feel welcome as they possibly can it's really interesting to think about when we think about a brand taking unethical investment so i'll just spoke about this recently on instagram really brilliantly she said oatly take this investment from blackstone and they're going to continue to grow and continue to make lots of money and continue to be a big player in the kind of plant-based revolution i'll just as if i took investment from an unethical brand on my page you'd all be outraged we hold individuals to such high account when really let's be holding the philip greens of the world accountable let's be holding the big fast fashion billionaires accountable because actually they're in a position to generate unbelievable change and they are the ones who are getting away with
3: hugely unethical practices you have to also understand the system in order to fight against it. And I think that's where, you know, thinking about cancel culture, to quote um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, she tried to break down how, like, The term cancel culture also comes from people who are already entitled, already have a platform and are complaining about becoming like a victim of being called out. But I think also that's what like Aja was saying. She wasn't saying to boycott Lucy and Yak. She was saying, I'm holding them accountable. I'm challenging them. And if no one's going to be challenged and you can't be challenged, then I don't know how we are going to change. That's what i was also saying about punching up. I think we spend so much time also policing each other on how to not call each other out or call each other in. I just wanna make sure that we're putting that same amount of energy in the right place because there's also that tweet that someone was saying about how you know we're spending all this time wondering, like putting generations into debt. Whereas if we just tax the rich, like the three to 10 billionaires, we'd solve a lot of our problems. (laughs) It goes back to what Swati says, is like the resources are there, the answers are there. It's more about the will and connecting to the people who have the power to change the system. So it's not impossible.
1: The way that these like huge corporations are built are also to claim that they are like people, like they claim rights as if they're individuals. And that's why you have like these crazy big corporations like Amazon paying less tax than I have, you know, or the headline today, which is about Donald Trump and his tax. And there's something just in that where it's like, we have to hold companies to account, you as an individual can stop using um, a plastic straw. But unless you are really raising your voice to say, by the way, every plastic straw that has ever been created, the responsibility should be on the companies that have made vast amounts of wealth to actually clean that shit up, like get it out of the ocean, turn it into something else, putting the responsibility on us to not just stop using something but also actively play a role in changing it of course we all want to do that we all want to be active in in working towards um, a world and the changes we seek but actually If we don't tell our governments, if we don't tell those corporations that they need, they have like a lion's share in the responsibility of cleaning that shit up. Globally, I think it's eight companies who produce more carbon emissions and more plastic and waste generation than, you know, than people do, those industries. And so not asking those industries to change, but demanding all people suddenly change their behaviours. You can't do one without the other. And corporations, they've built a system where they're able to just manufacture all of this and leave the responsibility on others to pick up while they go around in their you know microfiber plastic yachts around the world there is a bit of a tide changing
2: but like one of the things that has really made me so angry i'm not sure if you've heard about the the situation with Rio Tinto recently blowing up an a cave like an indigenous cave which is 46,000 years old sacred indigenous um area like mining companies anyhow this was blown up blown up recently and people were outraged obviously it had some of the most incredible like incredible things in this cave including like human hair that was fossilized and stuff and there's a huge amount of pressure and then just recently the ceo has he's i think he's resigned i think he was forced to resign um and you know for me this is like an interesting example of also of how some companies are being held to account I was horrified when i heard about this um because they had other options, apparently, and then still went ahead with the option that maximised profits and destruction. Um, and, you know, I think, but it's interesting because he did resign, their profits dropped, but yet still there's no sort of accounta- like legal accountability. Like I think if individuals did this sort of thing, how that, you know, it's it's a type of terrorism in some ways, you know, so I think it's an interesting thing to look at of how corporations can still all they have to do is quit <laughs> or, you know, what the measure of accountability is. And I think also what you said, previously, Debbie, of like redistributing the wealth of the 10 richest people. I think it's amazing that it's so simple. But I also, the other part of that for me is I wonder is like, there's an underlying tone, which is that we still don't value people and the environment. And we they're still seen as resources to be exploited so even if you sort of take like redistribute that wealth which I think is a necessary step I sort of worry that there's kind of a worldview or a mindset change that needs to happen at like all levels and that's like a process and I think you know I think what is happening now and we're seeing in the context of the pandemic is that there is a little bit of like collective unlearning happening and some reimagination and kind of different ways you can see alternative economies and alternative systems of how people relate to each other popping up. And I think that's happened out of a necessity in some ways that people are grounded and localised and they need support and help and care from their community. So I think really um, not so much focusing on the individual, but recognising that people do need to support each other. And so I think when we talk about the idea of solidarity economies, they're not a new thing. Um, They've been around, you know, for centuries and manifest in different ways but I think what's really interesting about them is that they're sort of offering a like a post-capitalist world like something else sort of value people and planet so I think it's exciting and yeah I think we're just in the context of COVID we're seeing so much crop up of you know different um, mutual aid networks we're seeing people you know swapping resources we're seeing different people sort of you know just connecting and supporting each other through little whatsapp groups through you know, sharing what they have and finding ways to sort of barter and things like that. Um, And I think, yeah, I think it's really amazing. And I think in the fashion industry as well, there's some really amazing examples. But I have the question of this, when we're talking about sustainable fashion, I'd love to hear like what you all think about this. Um, There's great examples we can lift up and I think we should lift them up as some part of this solidarity economy and people valuing their workers and paying them properly. But I wonder if this can be done at scale or if it even has to be. You know, like I think this problem with capitalism and the system is just like more and more more all the time. But I guess I wanted to ask you all if you have seen it done at scale or like what do you think about that question of if it can even be scaled or should be?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really good question. I don't know whether it really can be done at scale and I don't think it's sh- like, I think it's not about the whether it should be. I think it's just the I don't think it, that it needs to be. I think that we need multiple solidarity economies happening in different nations and communities, you know, that actually allow people to live like in sort of uh, regenerative existence with one another. But I think the myth of capitalism is that it's that we have to continually grow. And there's only a few companies that are allowed to do that because their shareholders are expecting lots of money being accumulated and more and more and more profits doesn't success lie in you feeling like you're doing the right thing that everyone in your entire company in your entire supply chain is able to live lives of dignity of justice we also understand success to lie in growth or lie in scale because that's what capitalism has asked us to do i think there are brilliant companies out there that are doing incredible work at scale i think that the models of cooperatives are brilliant of partnership projects are amazing where the workers actually own the companies so it's not that they don't exist or that it can't operate at scale i think it's more about why i
3: just also want to think about like the other economies that we're trying to build and i think there's another economy that has touched upon in this campaign and that's the the economy and the system of organizers, of campaigns, of nonprofits, of charities, of unions, and all of them are mostly cash strapped and also dealing with scarce resources. And I think that's another thing from our campaign that I really wanna make sure we lift up is that the same amount of time we spend you know, deciding where to put our resources for the right fashion company or the right um, fas- the right um, model, I think it's still also just really important to recognize and give our resources to those people who are working overtime, you know, outside of their jobs or, you know, are working every day to change that system. You know, we need lawyers, we need care workers, Yeah, we need so many people in this, in this movement. And, you know, we, we lifted up women's funds like Samia's, we lifted up the Asia Floor Wage Campaign and Labor Behind the Label, we've lifted up Remake. And so I would also encourage so much of us to honor that labor as well, that organizing work.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for raising that, Devi. I I think, you know, it's also just so important to make sure that those groups actually get funding for the organizing that they're doing, because, you know, rather than working all the time and being able to have some space for that, that really important organizing. I also just wanted to lift up one other concept, just because when you were speaking, SWATI, it made me think of it and just kind of highlight the idea of like buen vivir. Maybe some of you have come across it, and we'll put maybe in the show notes. We'll add in a little bit about that, but it's just kind of really it you know comes out of South America, and it's actually part of the constitution I think in Ecuador it was like this idea. But it, and it kind of translates to living well, really just valuing people in the environment and really seeing this idea that it doesn't have to be more and more and more in relation to your community as and not necessarily on your own, but is how and how we are our strongest and sort of in connection to each other and and seeing the idea of the environment as part of that community and that we're not actually it's not something that we sort of take and use and exploit for our own you know our own needs but we're sort of in relationship to that and we have a role to steward and respect that and we don't own it yeah I know well-being has been sort of you know it's in different spaces it's also becoming part of the sort of capitalist machine and like consumer machine as well. And I, just, I think it's nice to look at other philosophies or ways that we can understand our existence and where we're going. And just the idea that we can't necessarily make the change we want to change by just fighting the existing system and reality. But to change something, we actually have to build you know, new models and alternatives that make the old system obsolete.
1: I love that so so true I love the idea of when vivid as well I've always thought it's an amazing concept and it is a new economy that's actually organized around reciprocity with nature rather than just extraction which I think is a beautiful way to think about how we can move post-capitalism into a new state of being I think there's many brands that are also using like dead stock one sort of interesting collaboration that that I've seen that's come out of this pandemic period, a collaboration between 11.11 and Stoffer, who've taken all of that material that was off the floors that they've been collecting for the whole lifetime of the companies and they've made it into a fully recycled collection. So it's all patchwork made from the offcuts that have been on the floor of the factories. 15% of all fabric is left on the factory floor and nothing happens to it. So I think alongside dead stock, we need to think about That. But I think more importantly for me, it's about how do we have models where we're really thinking from like a seed to stitch perspective. And what I mean by that is, like, what are the agricultural practices that a lot of these products are being made in? Because to your point, um, Venetia, there are brands that, you know, have organic cotton or recycled work. And I think that's brilliant. We also need to inquire about. Who's actually growing that organic cotton? Are they being treated fairly? Are they getting a fair wage? Are they in good working conditions? You can't have sustainability and still exploit workers, whether they're farm workers um, or whether they're garment workers or whether they're dyers in the supply chain. It has to go throughout. So I do think those kind of seed-to-stitch models of really looking right from the moment that the products that you're using are grown to when they're being used, but also thinking beyond. How can we create materials that are able to decompose and to re-reach the biosphere as well? And remember talking as part of the campaign to this incredible group in India called Gramina Vikas Kendram. And they were really, you know, focused on ethical farming practices for cotton but more importantly they were looking at how fibers are constructed in a way that they can be unpicked after they've been used and they can most sustainably return to the biosphere and I remember a beautiful quote from one of the workers in the chain who said so much beauty and love and effort has gone into growing That cotton into spinning it into weaving it into the person that then cuts the patterns that stitches and sews it packages it that sends it before it even reaches us the least that we can do is not only honor it. But think about how those materials return back to the planet. I also do think that we need to invest in in a green new deal throughout the campaign. We've always talked about the need for reciprocity with the planet as well as as well as people, um, and we haven't really focused on the environment. But we all do know that the current fashion industry is extremely bad for the environment. The United Nations Climate Change News states the fashion industry contributes 10% of all global greenhouse gas emissions due to its long supply chains and energy intensive production. And we know actually, and I think Venetia, you've done so much of this through your work and and explored it also on the Talking Taste Buds podcast. Podcast, but eighty-five percent of waste from the fashion industry actually just goes into landfill. So eighty-five percent of what we produce doesn't get loved and stay in our wardrobes. Eighty-five percent of it returns to landfill, and it makes up five percent of all landfill space in the world, and that's just growing. Going back to that being a systemic issue. We as consumers are buying 60% more garment pieces compared to 15 years ago, but we're actually just keeping the clothing items for half as long. So that's where the system is telling us, you need to buy more, you need to keep buying rather than just loving the clothes that we're in and making sure that 85% of them don't end up in landfill. And so we really support the need for a Green New Deal. A Green New Deal is a call for an unprecedented mobilisation of resources to rapidly eliminate greenhouse gas emissions and embrace social, environmental and economic justice. It recognises that decarbonization at the necessary scale and speed will entail a profound reorganisation of our economies and our institutions. The transition to getting to zero carbon is an opportunity to challenge deep social and economic inequalities and the system that we keep talking about, the same inequalities in wealth, power and resources that have driven the climate crisis. So moreover, if decarbonisation happens in a way that deepens these inequalities, we risk ripping apart the social contract upon which a transformation of this scale depends. We do stand with many movement leaders. One such is the amazing Tessa Khan, who says, a failure to draw on and invest in the wealth of feminist analysis of economic, industrial and social policy would be a lost opportunity and a betrayal for those who have endured the worst impacts of our unequal, unsustainable say, status quo. To fully realise the promise of a Green New Deal, it has to be a feminist Green New Deal. And I think that the fashion industry needs to really embrace a green new deal if we're to really change the system facts on facts on facts
3: (laughs) oh i had so much i was going to add about the police and brutality but i think it's becoming (laughs) that very uh long smartphone like my smartphone has to be for it to be truly intersectional it has to be like five feet long
0: so true we all know that meme and if we don't I'll leave it in the show notes Mm -hmm. thank you so much Swati Ruby and Davy, for this fascinating conversation as always I learn so much from you all and you've been the best thing to come out of 2020 for me so I'm so so grateful for you and your work and your compassion and everything that you do and I'd also like to say on behalf of all of us Thank you for listening. We have enjoyed this campaign so much. Doing something with no agenda other than to center garment workers and share useful information and resources and kind of amplify the work that other people have been doing and are doing has just been. Such an incredible process. The intention for this podcast was for it to be a six episode podcast. So it feels very bittersweet recording this final episode with you. But you can follow us on Instagram at remember who made them and on Twitter at made underschool them. Over on Instagram, we will be sharing the stories of different garment workers and their unions that we've collected through this process. And we're really, really proud of that work. And we are delighted to be in a position to share it with you. So please do follow us over there. And you can always sign up to our Patreon where we will be sharing bonus content. There's already bonus podcasts up there for you to enjoy. You can join for as little as a pound and that money will go direct to garment workers and their unions. So thank you so much for listening. We hope that this campaign has re-energised a new solidarity economy in fashion, an economy that centres the health and wellbeing of workers over corporate profits, an economy that cares about the social and environmental impact of the clothes we buy and an economy that builds power in the communities where our clothes are made by celebrating the labour and dignity of garment workers by demanding fashion brands and their owners be held accountable to pay up and do better by elevating not competing with existing movements and campaigns and by refusing to return to the way things were before we know we can transform the future of fashion Clothes are powerful. We use them to express ourselves and explore our creativity. But no matter what clothes we wear, we should always remember the people who made them.
4: We need the global solidarity because we made your clothes. We made you happy and nice things. If we make these things and I made your clothes, why my life is not happy? When you make happy your life and think also my life happy, on the channel.